0: Hi, this is Sean Perrin, and you're listening to episode 17 of the Clarinet podcast. Sanding, shaping, balancing. For centuries, mastering your instrument meant mastering these crafts too. But now, D'Addario is redefining craftsmanship for the 21st century by refining their reeds and mouthpieces with technology built from the ground up. By using the world's most innovative techniques to deliver consistently what was once made variable by hand, D'Addario ensures excellence right out of the box as standard, not a surprise so you can spend less time sanding shaping and balancing and more time perfecting your own craft to learn more about the new era of craftsmanship from Dedario woodwinds visit slash woodwinds today our featured guest is ed joffey who has been a vital part of the new york music scene for over 40 years He has performed in every type of musical situation imaginable, ranging from Broadway shows such as Fosse and Victor Victoria, chamber ensembles such as the Philip Glass and Steve Reich ensembles, and orchestral performances with the New York Philharmonic and New York City Ballet Orchestras. Ed has offered numerous clinics on woodwinds and jazz at music education conferences and universities. He is a graduate of the Juilliard School and the first person to receive his doctorate in multiple woodwind performance from the Graduate School of the City University of New York. Dr. Joffe has worked and studied with some of the most respected artists of our time, including Joe Allard, Eddie Daniels, and Ron Rubin. Ed was a professor of music at New Jersey City University for 24 years and was coordinator of jazz and woodwind studies. Under his guidance, these programs were hailed among the best in the country. Ed is a very interesting man. We had tons of great conversation and uh, so much that I actually want to break this episode into three different ones. Across the uh, three episodes, we talk about his life on Broadway, his, uh, his career as a doubler, his new CD Contrasts, and his really interesting book called Doubling for Saxophone, Clarinet, and Flute. These items can be purchased directly from Ed at JoffeWoodwinds.com. That's joffiewoodwins, J-O-F-F-E, Woodwinds.com. The giveaway for this series of episodes is a signed copy of Ed's new CD, shipped anywhere in the world, free of charge. If you'd like to be eligible to win items mentioned on the podcast, please subscribe to the email newsletter at clarinet.com. You'll also receive monthly updates, exclusive offers and discount codes, and insight into upcoming guests on the show. Before we get started, I want to play a little bit of music from Ed's upcoming CD, and then we'll dive right into part one of the interview. This is a tune called It's All About Buddy, which is a musical tribute to jazz artist Buddy DeFranco. Welcome to the Clarinet Podcast, Ed. I'm so thrilled to have you on the show today, and I, th- I really thank you for taking the time to be with us.
1: Thanks, Sean. I'm delighted to be here and to discuss anything related to woodwinds and woodwind doubling.
0: Yeah, we're, that's what the main focus of the, t- the interview today, but I'm also hoping to address your amazing book and the CD, which you recently released called Contrasts. Um, in fact, you're one of those guests that I feel like I could just talk to all afternoon, so we may have to break this into a one or two show, uh, two or three episode, um, podcasts. And, you know, in, in a way that'd be fantastic if we do that, just cause I really want to make sure that everyone gets a chance to hear all that you have to say. If there's so much, I started reading your book and I was just overwhelmed with knowledge, if that makes
1: sense. <laughs> well, I, well, if it's helpful in that way, I'm glad. Uh, that's, you know, that's certainly the, uh, my intent to try to, you know, reach as many people as possible with, information that truthfully I didn't know about until I began the research. And that that's actually what was
0: so surprising to me is that I, I was like, how do I not know a lot of this stuff as a, as a woodwind player? So it's really, really fascinating to, to read about.
1: Well, the truth is, I don't think any of us knew about a lot of this stuff. Uh, certainly when I went to school, if I had known some of the things uh, that I uncovered in this book, it would have made life a little more interesting and maybe would have been uh, toned down some of the professors' prejudices against people who play uh, many woodwind instruments and certainly play music other than Western European classical music.
0: <laughs> yeah, I definitely want to get into that. But but first, um, let's talk about what kind of got you into doubling uh, at the beginning. In your book, you share a really interesting story about an experience, very... Uh, unlikely experience. <laughs> and, and I, I, I don't remember what the place was, but I believe it was an interaction between you and a stripper of all things, so would you share Cole's Notes version of that story with us?
1: Yeah, this what a way to start the interview. Okay. Uh, well, first of all, I, I my love for playing woodwinds uh, was due to my father, and he had been a saxophone and clarinetist as a young fellow, and I uh, had studied with, uh, actually the same teacher who was Stan Gantz's main teacher, a fellow named Bill Shiner. Uh, and so my dad would occasionally take out the saxophone or clarinet, uh, when I was a kid and would play it around the house. And I just, I loved the look of it. I loved the smell of it. And he had a beautiful sound. He really did, but he never went into music. Unfortunately he should have, but he didn't. And, uh, you know, so when I, it became time for uh, me to get some music lessons. My mother played a little piano, so I started on piano, and then um, my father uh, got me one of his uh, teachers to uh, work with. He would come to the house weekly, and I would study clarinet, which was my first woodwind instrument, and then by the time I got to sixth grade, I had started clarinet in fourth grade, and when I was in sixth grade, uh, I started on alto sax as well, so Right from the beginning, I was playing saxophone and clarinet and, you know, I never knew anything else. I said, well, that, you know, that's what you're supposed to do. Um, and then I got, when I, by the time I got to college, uh, and majoring in music, uh, Kids were getting together and playing in bands and earning money, uh, mostly through things we call club dates here, or sometimes referred to as casuals, where you play for dinner dancers or weddings, or bar mitzvahs, or you know any kind of functions. And you'd play pop tunes of the day and also standards uh, of the American songbook. And so, in the summer of my freshman year at college, a few of my classmates and I got together, had a little band, and we worked up in the Catskill Mountains in upstate New York. Um, It's it's also referred to sometimes as the Bosch Belt. And what that was was a a community of roughly about 100 miles north of New York City uh, where there were hundreds of hotels and smaller bungalow colonies where people would go to to vacation, especially in the summer months. Uh, In the 1950s and 60s, Into the 70s, you have to remember, there was uh, very little or no air conditioning at all. So when the summer months came, people would escape uh, the city heat and would travel to the mountains. And this was something that was brought to this country by Europeans uh, because Europeans did that routinely. They would leave their major cities and travel to mountain areas, mountain communities uh, to vacation and, uh, you know, either ski or just have a good time. So that concept uh, was brought to 20th century America and in New York we had the Catskill mountain. So, uh, my friends and I in this little band worked in a bungalow colony, uh, our first summer as college, uh, you know, undergraduate music majors. And one of the shows we had to play the first weekend, our very first gig was backing a stripper. Now, strippers especially bungalow colony strippers used to do two or three shows a night uh they would just jump from one bungalow colony to another down the road maybe 10 miles to another one and make their you know taste that way and so they were used to coming in and talking down a show which means that you didn't really have a rehearsal of the music they just said okay we're going to start off with like a tune like night train in a certain key, I wanted at this tempo, and then we're gonna to jump to uh maybe uh caravan uh by you know Ellington's caravan, and then maybe we'll do a slow number like the Mizzulu. I mean they would go from one tune to another, and we're sitting there, 18, 19-year-olds, we have no idea what's what we're supposed to do. And she's talking it down. And then she turns to me and, and she said, Who's the uh who's the Woodwood player here? you know, I raised my hand because here I am, you know, totally innocent. And I mean, innocent. You wouldn't find another 18, 19 year old as innocent as I was then. I was ridiculous. (laughs) I I was the ultimate nerd. Man, it was it would be a sad sight to see uh, today. But um, she said, "Okay, do you double? And I had no idea what she meant by doubling. I thought she was hitting on me and I thought. Uh, And and I started stuttering and she said, well, you know, you know what I mean? Do you play a lot of woodwind instruments? And I said, oh, yeah, I play saxophone and clarinet. And, you know, because I had I had actually I had alto sax and tenor sax and clarinet on the stand for that gig. And she said, don't you play flute? And at that time I did not. So I said, no, she said, you're not a doubler. You don't play flute. You're not a doubler. And she just sneered at me and like turned away to talk to the other guys. And here I was. I had no idea what uh, you know what was happening, but she obviously insulted me, and I had no idea why. And but all I know is I wasn't a doubler according to the stripper. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> so that got me to trying to figure out well. What is a doubler? And, oh, I have to play saxophone, clarinet, flute as the minimal requirement. Um, and then the next year at school, I started studying flute. <laughs> right so away. The, so so I owe my career to a stripper. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's so interesting,
0: though, how sometimes even the most unlikely people sort of plant a seed in your mind that sort of grows into something. And it's very doubtful that that lady would have known that she influenced that in you.
1: Oh, I- believe me, bungalow strippers couldn't care less about what they influence other than getting their paycheck. (laughs) Yeah, but it's just so weird. It's such an an interesting story. Of course, yeah. It was was absolutely true. I couldn't have invented that. Yeah, Yeah, You know. As the years went by, I started saying, you know, Jesus, if it wasn't for that stripper, maybe I wouldn't have started flute the next year. Maybe it would have been several years later. Because, quite frankly, I didn't want to play flute at that time. Um, I... My brother, younger brother, had played flute as a kid because uh, it was recommended to him his particular uh, overbite where he needed braces allowed him to play flute and not saxophone or clarinet initially. And my periodontal problems as a kid where I needed braces allowed me to play saxophone and clarinet, but not flute. So when I tried, you know, as a younger kid to play flute, the first thing I remember was getting dizzy and almost passing out. Uh, which is a common occurrence when you you play your first few notes on flute and you know you tend to overblow and you know you don't know how to direct the air etc. So I didn't want to play flute uh, until the stripper you know insulted me. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> so although that sounds like a bit of an odd story, um, this situation ended up inspiring you to be the best you could be on all woodwinds, not just the clarinet or saxophone. And you were actually the first person to graduate from the. Uh, graduate center of the city of New York.
1: Yes, from the City University of New York, yeah. Uh, Well, that's true, but I I, I do have to throw in uh, another major influence. I mean, the the stripper story is cute and all of that, and and certainly got got me to study flute. But the person who's playing really knocked me out and uh, absolutely uh, became a role model for me as a young player was Eddie Daniels. Um, I had, you know, like all the other kids, we watched late night television because in those days uh, all of the late night shows had big bands and the woodwind, and you know, we had five uh, saxophone doubling woodwind chairs in those shows and and they were phenomenal musicians. Uh, So one night I was watching the Dick Cavett show and Eddie Daniels was featured. On a station break, playing Cherokee at the most incredible tempo, and they kept the camera on Eddie for a good minute—quite uh, unusual. You'd never see that today. But the Cavett Show was an unusual show in many ways, and I thought, "Wow, this guy is amazing." And around that time, I also began my studies with Joe Allard, uh, who was also Eddie Daniels' teacher, and uh, Joe would would often mention Eddie. And uh, so I knew his name. And then when I heard him play on the Cabot Show, it blew me away. And then I went down to hear her play at uh, the Village Vanguard with the Thad Jones and Mel Lewis Orchestra, which was the, you know, the top American jazz orchestra of the day. And it, quite frankly, still is 50 years later. Um, but and then I heard him play clarinet. And then he released an album shortly thereafter called The Flower for All Seasons, where he plays half the album on flute and half the album on clarinet. And that blew me away. So ultimately, I went to study with Eddie uh, uh, because I wanted to be a studio musician, a staff musician like Eddie was. He was staff on ABC for that period of time. He was on the Dick Cavett show. So my very first lesson with Eddie was uh, life changing for a number of reasons. Uh, His first question to me was, uh, what do you want to do? And I told him, I said, I want to do exactly what you're doing. And he immediately, uh, as only Eddie can do, told me bluntly, without any emotion, uh, after my job ends, there will no longer be any staff positions, staff musician positions in New York or anywhere else. It's where the last uh, that's going to exist. And, of course, as a young kid, you tend not to believe these things. But Eddie was absolutely right and honest uh, to its see, as he always is. And uh, it proved to be correct. Uh, but he also asked me, you know, what are your other goals? I told him I want to play jazz clarinet. And he said, OK, uh, Sit, you know, what do you want to play? And I told him I wanted to play this tune. There will never be another you, which is a you know popular standard, especially for jazz players. And he said, OK. Uh, I took out my clarinet and he said, uh, play it at the piano first. And I said, uh, what? He said, yeah, play it at the piano. Let me see what you can do at the piano. And of course, I knew harmonically maybe the first four changes uh, of the tune. I really had never done this before, you know, sitting at the piano, cording the tune and even improvising on the tune. And of course, Eddie could do that in his sleep. It was incredible. So. That got me to studying music and understanding harmony better and certainly improving my piano chops so that I could, you know, I have decent piano chops as far as just cording behind any tune or I could probably play behind a singer and, you know, not embarrass myself these days. Uh, But So Eddie's first lesson was pretty right on the money as far as what you have to know as a musician and be responsible for, but also a reality check that those type of studio staff musician jobs were uh, going uh, going away. Uh, but that didn't discourage me anyway. I, I really loved all the instruments and I loved lots of music. And, uh, you know, his virtuosity and brilliance and dedication on all those instruments always was a, a standard that uh, I held high.
0: Yeah, Eddie, Eddie's fantastic. I'm hoping to one day have him on the show too, actually. Um, you do, should. Do you have another story you'd like to share about your time working with him? Because that's just a glimpse that people don't get to. Uh,
1: well, <laughs> you know, people today know him as the, you know, the the top jazz clarinetist. But um, he was really one of the most incredible young jazz tenor players. In fact, he. Uh, won first prize in a, in a jazz competition in Austria in the 1960s. And uh, as a result, the very first album he made was called First Prize. And he was one of the original saxophone players, uh, five of the five-member sax section of the original Thad Jones-Mel Lewis Orchestra. And Eddie's playing on tenor uh, and clarinet and that orchestra is phenomenal. As a flutist, uh, he, I ended up studying flute with him for a while, and he really was so dedicated as a flute player that uh, people may not know this, but at one time he wanted to audition uh, to be the flutist in a major New York city woodwind quintet. Of course, turned it down. He just took the audition as a lark, but he, he's that incredible a virtuoso. Um, And as a result of studying with Eddie on flute, uh, I ended up studying with Tom Neifinger because Eddie had studied with Tom Neifinger uh, for many years and was friends with him. And, Tom Knifinger ended up being my uh, friend and greatest influence on flute playing. And I owe him as much, uh, as I owe Eddie and, uh, you know, for my career. Uh, so Eddie's influence was pretty widespread for me. Um, I will tell you a little, uh, a little funny story that happened a few years ago at the, uh, international clarinet association conference that was in LA. I think this is about five years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, Uh, I I was doing a tribute to my teacher and Eddie's late teacher, Joe Allard, and I enlisted Eddie to play uh, a piece with me uh, with a couple of other clarinetists. We had a quartet written dedicated to Joe Allard, Uh, a friend of mine from L.A., great jazz clarinetist and pianist Tom Rainier wrote the piece. Uh, and so we only had a chance to rehearse it the day of the performance because we were, you know, I was coming from New York and he was coming from Santa Fe, New Mexico. Uh, John Cipolla who joined us, uh, was coming from, uh, Kentucky and, and Gary Bovier was the resident person from LA there. So the four of us got together that morning to have a one hour rehearsal on this quartet that was brand new. And, uh, I had, since I had commissioned it, I had gotten all the parts, and I had run a rehearsal in New York, and I had played Eddie's part to get an understanding of what you know was going to face each person, so that I could sort of circumvent any problems and you know make the rehearsal as you know efficient as possible. So we got down, we, we set upon it and started playing. And in the third movement of this piece, there's a it's a huge solo for Eddie's part, uh, the top part where he's improvising throughout much of the movement. And the improvisation is not uh, in any way predictable, cyclical. It's uh, chords that you would not anticipate on any level. And Eddie was basically sight reading it, to be honest with you, because, you know, he's so busy and, you know, he never had time to look over the part. So we, you know, he asked some questions. We started playing and I was playing the bass clarinet part. So I was sitting directly opposite Eddie. I mean, maybe within two, three feet. And we started playing, and all of a sudden, he is playing something that's so unbelievable and magical and and, and just ridiculous that about halfway through his improvisation, I got lost and had to stop because I was listening to him, and it was absolutely the most incredible thing to hear a, a player of this nature, first time through, just devour a part and create an improvisation that was so perfect that you couldn't have written out a bit of uh, uh, an improvisation. Um, he is that way. He is he's a, a soloist and a first time, a first take player who can just play the most incredible things the first time through. And that's what a that's what a good studio player can do as well. They can sight read anything, capture the emotion and the feeling of a piece. Uh, and that's something we don't have today, because all of that type of work is really gone. Uh, but Eddie grew up through that era, and he can do that. And, uh, you know, it's it's you might think he's practicing the part forever, which, you know, in some certain stances, I'm sure he does. But he's that much of a talent, that much of a reader, and that much of a great improviser that he can just on a spot, create something that's so perfect that you would never imagine it was improvised.
0: That's amazing. It's, it's so, just so inspiring, too. And especially in the classical realm, we often uh, forget that, that that area of study even exists sometimes. And that's why I've kind of tried to feature a few guests with it on the podcast here, because it's actually, it's rather new to me as well. And
1: It is. Uh, I've, uh, uh, yeah, sure. And, and just a little tidbit. Eddie is now 75, and he's still practicing every single day, as hard as you can imagine. His love for um, playing and music has not evaporated, and that's also served as a a role model for me, because you know, the music industry, no matter which facet you're in, can beat you up pretty good. Uh, I mean, no one is immune to that. Uh, There are gigs you wanna have that maybe you don't get, or you don't get called for, or, or there's auditions that someone else wins. Uh, there's always things that can drag you down, or the gig you're on ends up being a drag. You know, the conductor's a drag, or your colleagues are not real colleagues. Uh, someone's trying to undermine you, or, you. You just never know. So, you know, as in any business, you can uh, really get hurt. But I've seen a lot of people lose their love for music and for practicing over the years. But Eddie Daniels is still, to this day, committed. And in love with the clarinet and as passionate as ever about music. And that's something, you know, I think that we should all uh, hold on to.
0: Yeah, no, I think it's amazing. So many people are interested in music or love music when they're younger. But especially those who take music careers sometimes get a little bit, uh, what's the word, let down almost and and become very unsatisfied as they get older. But uh, some really hang on and that's so inspiring to me.
1: Yeah, that's a polite way of saying it, Sean. <laughs> we, we've got a local but,
0: guy here. He's 80 years old this year. This is just all, all over the news. I know him I know him from, from around town. 80 years old, just got nominated for his first Juno record, record, uh, Juno Award because he just recorded his first CD and it's been a huge success. and that's the kind of passion that, that you know many 25-year- old musicians don't have.:
1: <laughs> Exactly. Tell me his name so I can learn about him.
0: Oh, it's Al Mearhead. Uh huh. Okay. I'll, I'll send you some information. Just a great player. And we actually recorded our album at the same studio with the same engineer. And, and we were talking about how, how just amazing it is for him to go and, and do that at this age. It's fantastic.
1: So. It is. And, and there are so many musicians that I've met uh, throughout the United States, certainly uh, older musicians who still are playing so great and are so in love with music. Uh, on the West Coast, there's a fellow named Gene Cipriano one of the most beloved woodwind doublers uh, of the, well, in history, and one of the most recorded doublers. He you know, he plays all the woodwinds and oboe, but he's a great jazz tenor player and still plays every week uh, at a club and sounds just great. I mean, really, I'm not talking about good. I'm talking about great. Uh, and so, I mean, when you hear stories about that, and like you're saying about Al Mirhead, that's what, that's what, should, you know, we should hold on to. Yeah, um,
0: because, absolutely.
1: You know, music is not just uh, for the gigs and for your career. You know, even if after you retire from a gig or from, a, let's say, an orchestral job, that doesn't mean you stop playing. You know, uh, Stanley Drucker uh, certainly is one person everybody knows about, had a 60, over 60 year career with the New York Philharmonic. And when Stanley retired, I engaged him at the university that I taught at to play a recital. And now listen to this if you want to hear something. Stanley was, I think, 82 at the time, maybe 83. Mm-hmm. And uh, he picked a recital of Vapor uh, Constantino, Rossini Introduction, Theme, and Variations, Boulas domain Domaine, and, ba- uh, and Brahms, I think it was the F Minor Sonata. Wow, you know that's a Now Now watch this. He did it without intermission. One right after another. Oh my God. It's like now, an hour, a,
0: over an hour of music, hour, I think.
1: That's that's a full hour and 10, hour and 15 minutes of music. Yeah. And and some of the hardest music, technical music, 82, 83 years old. And I'm telling you, he nailed it. it was. I kept thinking no one's going to believe this if I tell people about it, but I still do. He just ate it up and he could have gone on for another hour if you if we had you know set the recital to be that length
0: wow. he was
1: just it, it was it was not a problem and by the way before the recital he came out just tested you know with the piano the balance and the pitch and for about a half hour 40 minutes before the recital sat in the audience with his clarinet case closed just relaxing and talking to people as if nothing there was nothing uh going to happen that was you know of any consequence and then he went out and played this recital straight through totally Uh, relaxed yeah 82 83 years old with technical fluency that you know i mean i i wish i ever had or anybody at 20 years old would be thrilled to have i mean
0: absolutely amazing
1: so you know we hear these stories and man that's what it is that's what it's about
0: so i want to get um Right into your CD here, but before we do that, yeah. I, I wanted to quickly ask because I think this is a really interesting um, topic. What was it like pursuing the goal of the multiple woodwind degree, and what challenges did you meet a lot of way along the way?
1: Uh, okay. Uh, so, in specific, that that was for the doctorate. Well the truth of the matter is i never wanted to get a doctorate in music believe me after i had graduated from juilliard i had at that point i had two masters one in music and one in music performance uh and i thought when i got out of juilliard I said, that's it you're never going to find me in another school again i don't want to be around this anymore i just want to go play and i like teaching as well i mean i love teaching privately and but i, I just wanted to play well, as years went by, maybe another fifteen years later, you know, and I, I'm married, have a family, uh, and I enjoyed teaching privately. I really did. I thought, well, you know, teaching at a college would be fun. I, I'd already had a little dab of teaching, uh, as when I got my music ed degree in elementary school and middle school. And I had taught for a year when I got out of Juilliard just to pay off my student debt at a very wealthy uh, country day school in a high school situation. So I had taught basically from fourth grade through 12th grade. And I realized I don't I don't want to do this, (laughs) you know, but Mm -hmm. college teaching intrigued me. A job came up. I won the audition. uh, And the requisite for the job that was advertised was master's required. So I figured, great. Well, I found out when I got to this uh, school that if I were, wanted to advance, in other words, get a move on from a assistant professor to associate to full professor, you had to have a doctorate. There was no ifs, ands, or buts. And by that time, in the almost the mid-90s, every school in the country and outside was requiring their doctorates. And I thought, well, if I wanted to get out of New York City and move away at, at a certain point in time, I'm going to have to get a doctorate. So I went back to school to get the doctorate, begrudgingly. But I made that—I made a condition for myself that if I was going to do this, I was going to do it on my terms and do it in multiple woodwinds because that's what I was. I was a doubler. I was working full time, and I had already worked full time for about 15 years at that time in the industry. Um, and I wanted to, you know, take it on all my instruments and, and learn something. Uh, because I always felt that when I went to school I was learning what I had to learn uh, some of the things I learned I didn't care about and some of the things that I wanted to learn wasn't available. so uh, I worked it out with the Graduate Center of the city University of New York that I would study with you know various people so I took lessons uh, studied some baroque flute, uh, studied some orchestral flute, studied op- uh, the opera repertoire with the principal clarinet of the Met Opera, Joe Rubai, at the time. Uh, You know, so I was picking and choosing areas that I hadn't studied with in repertoire that I didn't know. And uh, so, you know, they let me do that. Uh, I had already had a position. I was assistant professor at a university. So here I am going for a doctorate and already have a full-time position at a university, which is a little unusual. Uh, And I was working full-time. I think I was doing... I don't. I can't remember what Broadway shows I was doing. Uh, I know one of them was Fosse, and uh, boy, they all draw a blank here on what uh, other show. That's okay. But, any, but anyway, I was you know I was working full time on Broadway, doing freelance gigs, orchestral gigs, um, subbing with all the various freelance orchestras in the New York area, giving recitals going to school, getting my doctorate and teaching full time. So, I mean, I, I was up to my head in work, but at least I was getting the degree in an area that I cared about and hopefully helping my playing along at the same time. Uh, so that was a little unusual, but the truth of the matter is the real education as a doubler for me always came on the job. Uh, you know, even so much as that very first experience being insulted by the stripper, I mean, learning that, yeah, you have to play flute and then doing club dates where you were forced to, um, well, you needed to know a large repertoire of, of, of standard tunes. You had to play jazz. You had to be able to play a show on site without a rehearsal. Uh, and you had a fake tunes, fake harmonies. Um, this was all part of the learning experience you got by playing in bands and little freelance gigs that were available. Um, you also learned how to juggle and organize your schedule because if you had to go from a rehearsal band to a gig to a late night Latin gig sometimes, which was very much available in New York in the 60s, 70s and 80s into the 90s, I, I mean, you really had to be on top of things. You had to make sure your horns were in good shape, you had the right equipment, you had the proper mouthpiece, uh, you know, to go in and play a gig, you know, in a sax section as opposed to playing in a chamber group. Uh, it, was, it was a very good experience, and there were so many great players in New York um, and so much opportunity to be around them Even if you didn't play with them, you could go study with them. And, you know, that was worth everything. So, as much as the schools at the time gave me some, you know, basic foundations and stuff, the real job learning, and I still think that's the case, happens on the job. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I was fortunate to be I, what I consider the last generation that had a chance to get a sneak peek of what it was like to work as a full-time woodwind doubler in jazz, commercial, classical music, where there was enough work to, you know, get experience in all those areas.
0: Yeah. I don't know that that would, that, that exists, you know, in Calgary here. I don't think there's a, a single full-time job where that's like your main role. People are, are usually self-employed and, and sort of freelancing, um, and they can still make themselves a full schedule, but yeah,
1: there, there are some radio bands in Europe sponsored by this their respective uh, states. Uh, Germany has quite a few, but also many of the Scandinavian countries do. Where uh, a lot of that is is required, where you have to be adapted jazz and commercial music, and and have also understanding of uh, Western European classical music phrasing, uh, but. In the United States, quite frankly, we no longer have steady jobs that require that. The closest thing that one sees is the jobs that are on Broadway, Mm -hmm. uh, where the musical theater uh, jobs come in and are of all different styles. And so if you're going to survive on Broadway as a multiple woodwind player, you really have to know styles. And look, that's even true of the uh, world of clarinet playing on Broadway, which is... Uh, had some interesting turns in recent years. Uh, It's not enough just to play uh, B-flat and A clarinet uh, and bass clarinet and E-flat clarinet. I mean, you also have to know how to swing a little bit, how to play in other styles of music. And uh, look, I've been playing uh, subbing for a friend recently over at Fiddler on the Roof, which is uh, another revival of this production and a wonderful revival uh, that's got lauded and probably will run for quite a while. Uh, but, you know, you have to know how to play a uh, klezmer-style clarinet in that show. And there are some huge clarinet cadenzas. I mean, three clarinet cadenzas in the show, there's no one else playing and it's just you. And you've got to know how to play that style of music. So that's something that's a little bit out of the, the realm of the usual. But that's so. what... It's that, so versatile. You, you, use, you the word,
0: use the word chameleon a lot, and I think that kind of reflects well the versatility that's required for that stuff.
1: Well, you, you basically are a chameleon of musical styles. If you're going to survive in the music industry today, most people, most people are going to have to do that if they expect to have a 40 plus year career. Uh, in music. And that's regardless of what instrument you're playing, by the way. Uh, it has come down to that. There are very few orchestral jobs out there, very few orchestral jobs that pay a livable wage, very few orchestral jobs that have a long term future given the declining audiences and the lack of uh, financial help that governments are supplying for our orchestras. Uh, so, in that end, and as well as the fact that we have. Fewer commercial jobs uh, that require large bands and large amounts of woodwind sections. Uh, Whatever you can do to uh, improve your knowledge of all musical styles and your ability to play them on your instruments is a win-win for potential employment.
0: Absolutely. So speaking of – we talked a second ago about your CD. Uh-huh. I really want to to get into the into that a little bit. Would you share sort of your concept of this CD and,
1: and what you're trying to accomplish with it with the audience? Sure. Okay. Well, first of all, you know, I've been in the music industry uh, as a professional now for 40 a little over 40 years. And you know, I've made a number of recordings over the years always working for others, whether it be Broadway cast albums or singers. You know, or just jingles or what have you, commercial recordings, but you know, always doing other people's projects. And because I was also teaching full time at universities for 24 years, actually with adjunct work, I was 27 years in higher education, um, it didn't leave me much time to do my own projects, quite frankly. Um, but when I retired from teaching a little over a year ago uh, at the university, I decided, you know, um, 63 years old now. And I said, I've got to do this. Uh, you know, I've always wanted to do my own uh, projects and I thought, okay, what am I going to do? What should be the focus? And I thought, well, my life has been devoted to playing lots of music, lots of different types of music with different musicians. And, um, uh, living in New York, I had the opportunity to be around so many uh, magnificent instrumentalists and singers uh so i decided to try to do something that would capture or be a retrospective of the type of work that i've done over my life and the type of work that i enjoyed the most so the center part of the album centered around first of all doing um saxophone section work with five saxophone doublers and so i had a number of pieces uh commissioned arrangements done by some of the most wonderful writers uh in the business from marion evans uh, John Fetchak, Pete McGuinness, Chris Byers, uh, you know, just fantastic writers. And so that was one aspect. Then uh, classical music, especially chamber music, has been a focus of my life. And I, I you know, and clarinet chamber music is the greatest there is for any Woodwood player. I mean, I love playing flute, saxophone and chamber settings, but Nothing could compare it to the repertoire we have as clarinetists available. And uh I work in the New York City Ballet Orchestra quite a bit as a saxophonist and I have done so for I think it's over twenty years now. And there's a concertmaster there who just knocks me out, named Kurt Nickman. And I've loved Kurt's playing for years. And there's also a pianist there. The staff the top staff pianist there is a fellow named Cameron Grants, who is friends and uh you know, I was thinking, what could I do to, with these guys? I wanted to get them involved in the project. And I had played contrasts over the years, a number of times. And I thought, let me just see if they'd be interested And they were thrilled to do it. And that for me was, you know, a highlight of the album. And because of the nature of the music on the album, where I playing saxophone section or chamber music on clarinet or some, uh, you know, bossa nova with flute uh, and some, you know, uh, orchestrated music for flute and clarinets. You know, I'm really hitting uh, music that is contrasting in itself. So the fact that contrast is on the album uh, fit uh, fit the album as a title as well. I was able to make use of it in that way. So that's how the title came about. But it's also, you know, how I chose to do bar talks, contrasts, uh, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, when you have great musicians, you got to find a way to play with them in some way. And, um, you know, and if you have great music that can encompass that, well, there's nothing better. Um, so, you know, that was my rationale to try to just uh, put down on CD a representation of, you know, the music I love the most, the instruments that I love to play the most, and working with so many musicians. And I think I had over 30 different musicians on the album, uh, and I think there were about 40 people involved, three different engineers and a couple of different recording studios, um, you know, then a separate mastering engineer. Man, it was it was a full-fledged project, way beyond the scope of what I initially planned, to be honest with you.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, these kind of things can uh, blow up in the amount of work that they, they uh, end up causing, in a way. <laughs> um, yeah, it,
1: it, it mushroomed. But I have to say to the listening audience, um, here was another thing that stuck with me. Uh, you know, uh, President Bill Clinton had written an autobiography years ago when he was 50 years old. Uh, and irregardless of what you think about Clinton as a political figure, you know, personal figure, he's quite a brilliant man, uh, you know, intellectually. And one of the things he said that everybody at 50 years old should sit down and try to write about their lives. And that stuck with me for a long time. And I thought, well, for me, you know, music has been my life. And, you know, a recording really would encompass that. And so finally, when I did get the chance when I was, I guess I was 61, when I started beginning the process of the album, I was trying to do what Clinton basically had advised people to do when they're 50. was put down uh, in some format uh, what your life has been about. And so for me, that that this album represents that.
0: That's fascinating. So this is almost like your autobiography. Yeah. In a musical. It,
1: what a cool yeah, way it, of looking at that. Yeah, I mean that's really how I. That's really why I did it and how I looked upon it, because. Um, if I tried to give any other reason at all, it would not be a- accurate and certainly with the amount of money that it cost me, I think my wife would probably, if I did it for any other reason, she'd probably uh, hang my head out to dry <laughs> and, and she would be correct in doing so. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. Yeah. No, it sounds fantastic. I, I can't wait to study it more uh, in depth and let it spin on my uh, CD player for a few weeks actually. So. Um, one lucky listener is actually going to win a copy of this album, so make sure to follow Clarinet on uh, the email list and on social media, and that'll give you a chance to win this this really great CD by Ed. So,
1: yeah, and by the way, just as a little plug, uh, I'm only selling it through my website. Uh, I didn't want any record company, any producer, anyone dictating what I did. You know, that's happened my whole life, and I just decided I'm going to take. Control of this and every way and be responsible. So, if anyone's interested in either the book or the CD, it's only available through my website, which is joffewoodwins.com.
0: Are you gonna? Are you considering any sort of digital distribution for it, or
1: not at the time? Because the truth is, you know, I want the album to be heard as in its entirety. Uh, I wasn't making this to make a lot of money, or you know promote a career at 63 years old i mean i've had my career Mm -hmm. uh in a sense i was i'm doing this because i'm trying to present a picture of what we as doublers uh had to do and should do and should want to do um so you know rather than just put the track out let's say contrast and offer that as a digital download well yeah maybe some people would buy that but you know i want them to see what you know, we as Woodwood Doublers, and, and doublers throughout the 20th century in the United States, Canada, Europe, uh, what we're about. And we're mm-hmm. about playing a lot of music, hopefully well, and um, making, you know, musical statements in a lot of different areas on a lot of different woodwinds.
0: I think that's such an admirable thought. Uh, one of the things I always recall from when I was younger is listening to albums. And and the concept of the album is really been uh supplanted by the song and I think a lot of kids nowadays have a yeah. lot of songs they like or a lot of pieces they like but they don't necessarily have favorite albums and uh that's that
1: that's true and, and also you know it requires a little bit of time and patience which the internet does not uh, foster for us yeah when uh, I, when I was
0: in high school I'd sit down I'd try to sit down once a week with my headphones on and just listen to an album and it, you know it'd take 45 minutes or an hour or maybe a little longer a little less but i always got great sort of enjoyment from listening to the album as an experience almost like a narrative experience it's why i really love concept albums i think they tell a story and uh and uh, this one you know as the story of your life will be even more interesting for me now so i can't wait to do that yeah
1: yeah i mean let's think about it some of our greatest works whether we're talking let's say don quixote raychaud strauss's fantastic tone poem. I mean, you're going to need a good 45 minutes to s- sit down and listen to that. Or if you're going to listen to the Beatles, Sergeant Peppers from the late 60s, you know, you're going to have to sit down and take time to listen to that. And, and no one objected to that, you know, throughout much of the 20th century. That wasn't even a thought. Well, do we have the time? Of course, if you. So, you know, that's the type of society I Came up with, and you know, the type that I'm still interested in being a part of. Uh, you know, the idea of, well, let me just hear one tune and you know, slam bang, thank you, ma'am, I don't care anymore. No, I don't, that means nothing to me. Uh, uh, it would be like going to a, a, a museum of art and walking in and seeing one picture and walking out. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, it really is the same deal. Uh, so, no, sorry. I think
0: so, yeah. And, and it just reminds me one more thing. Uh, I, uh, when I graduated from university, I'm mean, I'm only out of school about six years now, I guess. But but um, my goal growing up had always been I wanted to have my own CD. But by the time I'd graduated, and especially now, I I sort of felt that medium had dried up, um, and I almost didn't do a project anymore because I didn't know if it would it, it would make sense for like from a marketing standpoint. But I I kind of decided I didn't care. I I wanted to do it because it it meant so much, and I think that's kind of what this maybe is.
1: Sort yeah, of for fair. you. Right. And you should definitely pursue that type of goal. And I, what little I heard of your uh, CD that's going to be coming out soon. It's, it sounds terrific. And, and you know, oh, that's, you. that it's important to pursue those individual uh, ideals and goals and not be worried if it's going to sell or if the public's going to like. I mean, you know, you have to live with yourself first and foremost. And if you really love music, and care about music, then you have to do, at some point, you have to devote yourself to that. Because if you don't do that, then your whole life is ends, ends up being what we call a work for hire. Mm-hmm. You're, you, you know, and I don't think any of us picked up our instrument to play and got the thrill from playing with that in mind. But again, this is what the industry, and of course the forces in society, can do to you. They can lead you astray from that initial love of just playing music and having fun and um i'm determined not to let that ever happen to me so this is you know part of that type of expression in a sense
0: so ed we're we're edging on a pretty long discussion here let's break this into two episodes and continue it next week um but thanks so much for coming on today this was really fantastic
1: yeah, well thanks thanks man. I appreciate it. I I always enjoy talking about music and uh, especially with, you know, musicians. <laughs> it's it's,
0: you know, it's what we do. <laughs> Before we wrap up actually, where can we find you online? We mentioned your website regarding uh, listening to the recording and, and the book.
1: Right. That that's the principle. Everything goes back to my website joffiwoodens.com, but I'm also uh, on Facebook as well, uh, also on the but the Facebook uh, page, it's a professional page, so it's one of those that just deals with uh, music and musical related subjects. It's not dealing with uh, what I eat for lunch or what you <laughs> ate for lunch. Uh, I don't care about that. <laughs> I, I, you know, so it's it, those are the two principal means, and uh, there's you know, this contact information through my email. Uh, at Jaffe at iCloud.com as well. Uh, so, you know, I'm happy to talk and commiserate with any other fellow Woodwind uh, players about, you know, things we've talked about today and, uh, you know, what's out there.
0: Something else we should mention, if you're interested, uh, listeners, is that there's a bunch of interviews that he's done on his website as well through YouTube. So if you're interested in hearing more of what he has to say, um, kind of on the other side of the microphone, uh, that'd be a great place to check that out.
1: Yeah, yeah it's, it's a series I started about a year and a half ago called the Woodwind Legacy Series. And uh, I think I've done about eight or nine now, and there's a couple more coming up, uh, with various woodwind players, saxophone, clarinet players, flute players, doublers. Uh, I'm actually doing one next month with a repairman. Uh, and so uh, I've also done one with Broadway conductors, uh, uh, so you can get a perspective of what the Broadway conductors are expecting from their players and from the doublers. Um so, you know, it's just trying to add to the overall information that we're, you know, all sharing on the Internet these days. And, uh, hopefully it helps a little bit. Absolutely. Well,
0: thanks so much for coming on the show today, and we'll continue the conversation next week.
1: You bet. Thank you, Sean.
0: I appreciate it. Sanding, shaping, balancing. For centuries, mastering your instrument meant mastering these crafts, too. But now, D'Addario is redefining craftsmanship for the 21st century by refining their reeds and mouthpieces with technology built from the ground up. By using the world's most innovative techniques to deliver consistently what was once made variable by hand, D'Addario ensures excellence right out of the box as standard, not a surprise. So you can spend less time sanding, shaping, and balancing, and more time perfecting your own craft. To learn more about the new era of craftsmanship from D'Addario Woodwinds, visit didariocom woodwinds.